Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been the leader in waterfowl conservation with over 16 million acres of habitat conserved. DU supporters and volunteers have led the charge to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. You too can play a role in leaving a legacy for the future of waterfowl hunting. To find an event near you or to join our volunteer team, go to www.ducks.org volunteer. Ducks Unlimited, conservation for a continent. Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Standard Sportsman Podcast. I am Casey Short, joined as always with my co-host, Brent Birch. Uh, Brent, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, considering the the technical difficulties I just overcame to record this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> which we shared a little bit offline. It's probably not consumption for the entire listening audience, uh, but technology's great until it doesn't work, and then uh, it makes you want to pull your hair out. So, uh, but I'm on the other side of that. I, I think this setup's going to work now, and we're ready to roll. Yeah, fingers crossed. Anyway, that's right. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Waterfowl hunters deserve to have a set of waders that can excel year in and year out throughout the duration of the season. So Sika Gear set out to build the best pair of waders ever. Constructed from Gore-Tex Pro Laminate, the face fabric offers added durability and is breathable in active working conditions while completely sealing out the elements. Importantly, they proudly stand behind all of their Delta Zip wader features with their 100% serviceable guarantee. And I'm speaking from experience as I have sent my original pair of Sika waders from the 2018 season back twice without a hiccup. Engineered to outwork, outlast, and outhunt everything else in the market, the Delta Zip waiter from Sika Gear is the gold standard for reliability. The Chatham jacket from Tom Beckby features the durable, weatherproof 8-ounce wax shelter cloth shell that develops a great-looking patina with use. I've actually worn this jacket the last couple of seasons and appreciate the shorter cut to it so it fits great inside my waders. It's also a really good weight for most Arkansas days of field. So if you like to mix a little vintage look with your technical gear waders, this is the jacket. You can find the jacket online at tombeckby.com. You can also find it in their brick and mortar locations in Wilson, Arkansas, Birmingham, Alabama, and the new store in Oxford, Mississippi. Well, uh, once we've got a pretty cool guest lined up today, someone that, that goes way back, uh, in terms of old school and all the way to current covers a swath of everything. Why don't you tell them who we got today? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this one. Cause uh, you know, a lot of our guests have been also good friends of ours, uh, you know, in the, in the waterfowling circles, which is, you know, in the grand scheme of things is pretty small, but uh, today we've got a, a guy here that I've, I've worked on hand in hand with several projects. One of which is the waterfowl hall of fame that's there in Stuttgart uh, that uh, he's chairing currently. And he's been a panelist on the duck season social, which is coming up next week and um, worked on all kinds of things and 
uh, contributed some stuff to Greenhead, the magazine, and of course the book and and all that. And I know he's worked a lot with you too, but uh, we're excited today to have Jim Ronquist on the show. So Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'll pay you later for that fine introduction. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime, anytime, anytime. But, uh, but yeah, so let's, let's kind of talk about we briefly talk about you know what you're doing currently because you know a lot of people in the waterfowling world relate you to RNT obviously because that was you were you were kind of the face of the brand so to speak with the, the television show and a lot of the appearances and and all that but you've changed here in the last couple of years and and now now at Drake so why don't you you know real quick tell everybody what what you got going now with Drake and and what's going on in that world yeah buddy so um spent a lot of good years at R&T and producing R&TV, still great friends with John, Angie, Rusty, Blake, everybody up there. Um, still had the rock and R still produced up there, still a big part of it. Um, and along with the Mondos and, and that being said, um, there's an opportunity came along with the kind of rebranding of Drake waterfowl that made the opportunity for me that I, Looked like one more last hurrah for my career that, that sounded good. So um, they brought me in and, and gave me a big fancy title on a business card, said Vice President of Development. And I have learned that that, that covers a lot of things. And uh, I still get to spend a lot of time in the mud and brush and weeds and turning wrenches and brushing duck blinds and all that sort of stuff. So uh, besides that, I get to set in on on some of the direction and of the company and it's kind of fun for me as other than the actual operations and shipping i get to be a part of uh you know naturally the marketing public relations side the product development side and the sales guys help support them so i get to set on several directions of the company and have input on it so that's uh that's a lot of fun yeah and and you too you know drake is is obviously branded as a waterfowl company but also you know plays some play some part in the turkey game which is a big part of your you know your love and passion uh beyond just ducks you bet uh you know um I, I, everybody asked me would you rather do jimbo duck hunt or turkey hunts and i don't have to make that decision it happens at different <laughs> times of the year but but i am very passionate about spring turkey hunting and uh, on the board of turkeys for tomorrow uh, kind of an upstart ngo um about turkey conservation interested in waterfowl conservation also so yeah, I, I, that's kind of my thing. Um, uh, love to duck hunt, love to turkey hunt. I just like to go hunt. I like to shoot rifles when I get a chance. I used to be big on have a freezer full of squirrels. So, uh, you know, just like to be out there in the middle of it. Awesome. Well, are, let me ask you this on, on you know, as far as Drake go, transition from R&T, because this is, gets into some of the stuff we want to talk about today. But sure. Um, you know, with R&T, you were kind of, you're bouncing around all over the country, filming shows, doing different things. Are you, you know, as, as part of your responsibilities with Drake, are you, are you still doing, I mean, you're obviously not, I don't know, maybe you are, maybe you are producing some content, but, uh, you know, maybe not the the regularity of a, a television show, but uh, are you still getting to travel around the country, hunt different places, do different, do different things, see different places? Yes, a little bit. And, and, you know, part of that development side of things is developing content, being a part of that. We don't have anything episodic currently, um, talking, throwing around lots of ideas for 24. Um, but yeah, I still get to travel a little bit. Um, I was in Saskatchewan in mid September, um, was in South Dakota on a pheasant hunt in October and headed over across the big river tomorrow 
uh, hunting Mississippi for the weekend on, on a place. So, yeah, I still get to travel around a good bit. Turned down a lot of great opportunities and invites because my, one of my other responsibilities is managing the the stuff that we hunt at Drake. You know, we invite people we work with and whatnot in to hunt, and I take care of all that. So that kind of keeps me busy here, but I do like to travel and go see how other people hunt ducks in other parts of the country. Yeah, for sure. Now, Drake has a spot here in our, and in, ended in up near the Cache River. Yes, yes. Yeah. We're, 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 up, we're north side Interstate 40. I say that. We do have a, a field and reservoir, but kind of well, the folks listening don't know where I live, but y'all will, this will give you, you and Casey kind of an idea, kind of between my house and all of them, you know, okay. kind of northeast of Stuttgart a little bit. Um, that's, I didn't go check it this morning, but it's been having a few birds on it. Hopefully the, it'll hold up till we reopen next week. And yeah, then we got some stuff north of the interstate and then some stuff up in the White River bottom. So we're scattered out pretty good on what we got to hunt. Well, you, you mentioned product development. I'm sure that's a pretty cool aspect to get into, especially given your, your history and background. I know all the time, you know, you, you've got a product in hand or something you're using. You look at it and think, boy, I wish I would have done it this way. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm sure that's pretty cool to to get your hands in on some of that stuff and, and direct where where that stuff goes and how it looks when the end user gets it yes that that that's that's really fun to be a part of um while i you know coming from a construction type background building duck calls blowing duck calls you know i've always because we're duck hunters and we're kind of gear freaks you know we always how many conversations we had about whose ever jacket or waiters or coat we was wearing whoever made it we've always had a comment on it and to be a part of that with the product development team about no, we don't need that there. Let's try this. Let's try that. And, and just say, no, this doesn't work. And why, you know, um, sometimes things as we all know, look really good on paper, but doesn't translate to real world usability. So, um, I get to set in with those guys talking about that a good amount. And then the other side is trying to figure out what the consumer out there wants. Uh, I've kind of learned that a lot of times what I like and what I think would be a good product that people would want to have it's not necessarily so so it's kind of like you always heard about fishing tackle and fishing baits you got to catch the fishermen before you catch the fish and i think with hunting clothes <laughs> and hunting apparel or hard goods it's kind of the same way yeah i bet yeah 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 and it, it, what's interesting too it, it, and maybe we, we can talk about this for a second but a lot of the companies in in the current waterfowl apparel business are going they've got almost like they've got a technical line and then they've got a a vintage line because i know drake has the McAllister mm-hmm. uh brand that you know started here in arkansas way back when and it's gone through a couple different hands uh you know but but y'all have got the like i said the technical gear and then the and then the the uh, vintage kinda, yeah well, you bet. yeah yeah so oh. I, I guess that's an attempt to you know for those that like to like that old school look uh, even though you're going to have to mix it with some new school with with waiters and everything else, but uh, I think that's pretty interesting that uh, the diversity, even under one brand umbrella, that yeah. uh, a lot of companies we, are going for. When we kind of they're they're kind of separate, you know, under the same umbrella. But it, it's what's really interesting there kind of goes back into what people want because I'm always fighting for McAllister, um, and it you know it's probably didn't the sales support there is probably not as 
strong or the consumer support there is probably not as strong as the more modern stuff. But at the same time, folks who like it love it. And the one thing I've learned after coming on, I was, you know, I wanted to talk about, hey, guys, let's 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 bring back the quality here. And they were already starting to work on that under the new direction and new ownership. So, you know, you always hear people say, well, that's the new McAllister. That's the Drake McAllister. Well, we, we're doing it like they did it years ago. So um, that's that's coming back around and getting people behind it. It's pretty cool. And to your point, you know, the modern fabrics, lighter, technical, waterproof, windproof, you know, warmer, everything about it, you, everybody's leaning that direction. You know, and what can you do with synthetic down and different membranes that that are breathable yet waterproof and that's that's kind of been a pretty cool direction that not just us but the whole apparel industry is gone yeah and that's you know you, you bring up a good point the people that that like that well it may be a small market they're very passionate about it i don't know there's something i love new stuff and it, it works really well but just the wax cotton the wool the real down I, something nostalgic about it. it's kind of like you know, both mine and your love for the auto five. Just I, you, you, that's that's going to use that same analogy. You know, yeah, exactly. It just makes you feel good when you when you go out there and hunt like that. So, uh, which kind of brings me to a, to a question I want to talk about. Um, talk about things we love. What are what are some places outside of the state that you love to go hunt? Experiences that you've had, you know, outside of our our beaten path. Man, yeah, you bet. Um, of course, it's hard to beat things right here at home when the conditions are right. Um, you can argue all day about it's changing or it's changed and whatnot, but it can still be pretty pretty spectacular here at home. That said, you know, Missouri offers some fine duck hunting in a lot of places, a lot of overlap. You know, a lot of Missouri is a lot like here. Um, North Missouri is pretty cool. It's a little different type of geography. Um, I've had some great hunts up there. Uh, it, it's interesting. They'll call it the woods hole where it's to us, it's a little pond back in the woods, you know, um, but have some great hunts up there. It's kind of where ducks really start using bottomland hardwoods, really start seeing them eating acorns and whatnot. Some of the other cool places I've been to, Kansas has got a lot going on. Um, Western Nebraska, the warm water sloughs of Western Nebraska has been one of my all time favorites. And, you know, people, it's hard to, place them you know folks say what's your favorite what's this what's that you know you get out of here there's just a lot of really good duck hunting and a lot of really good places um that's enjoyable to go see uh you maybe kind of getting away from your question a little bit but you know how many times we hear people say man flyway shifted to, to kansas and oklahoma and texas well yeah. you get to travel around out there and you get to riding them old ranch roads and riding through pastures and whatnot um you'll you'll ride up on old duck blinds that's fallen apart or been there for a while or knocked it down. They built a new one. Um, and Cowboys been hunting ducks out there for a long time. And I don't think there's been a shift. I think it's just more people know about it. Um, but there's some great hunting out there. You know, it's different, you know, hunting the, the watersheds or a pond or a small river, but it's, it can be very, very fun and enlightening and, and get some big bunches in some stuff that's on my bucket list is, um, uh, Montana and Idaho. I got to go to uh, Washington State one time, way, way back, um, hunting on the Columbia River, and that was spectacular. Um, there, there's some, there's some awesome matter duck hunting in the Western states for sure, and always has been. Just more people know about it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've seen you know some of the stuff that you did with Jake Latundras back in the day. 
and watching that style of hunting looks incredibly intimate there on the Western Nebraska like that. And it looks, I mean, open, but similar to our timber hunting. I mean, you're, you're talking, working them in tight and close and it looks really cool. It's definitely got a woodsy feel to it. Um, there's a place we hunted out there with Jake, uh, it was warm water slough and heck it wasn't, it was maybe as wide as a long wheelbase four door pickup is long. Um, and you know, inside the Russian olives and willow trees and cottonwoods. And when they break to come in there, it's just like us hunting in the woods here and it's close, you know, mm-hmm. it's just unbelievably close and fun. And, uh, I just enjoy hunting out there and some big, big bunches of ducks get out there on the plat. I um, mean, that's also fun. I remember hunting the actual channel of the plat when you, uh, fast water, you know, you shoot a duck, you gotta, you better be on him quick or have a dog downstream pretty quickly, you know, to get your birds, but uh, they'll wrap up in that shallow water on the plat. And it's, it's pretty neat. It's fun to see, especially late in the year when it's cold and that water starts freezing up, even in that fast moving river, they move to them warm water sloughs. Oof, nothing prettier. Have snow on the ground, a hundred pack of mallards belly up in your face at 10 feet. It's pretty cool. Yeah, those the videos and stuff, you know, because I've, I've seen some of the episodes that y'all did out there and, and, and seen some other stuff. And it's an incredible background and scenario to to put yourself in. Um, but, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of times that, you know, the big groups of ducks uh, in that part of the world. What do you what do you attribute that to? Is it a, a narrower, narrower uh piece of habitat that they they all have to kind of congregate to they can't spread out quite as much like maybe they can here or in some other places or I is, think it, that's is a it pressure or is it pressure or is that i think you're hitting on around it i think it's a you know it's always more than just one thing but i think it's the habitat the way just the way things are now there say that most of your hunting is like here you know singles pairs fours five sixes kind of things but then you'll get a big feeding bunch at one time that maybe the eagle gets up off a river or something but the habitat span is narrower and there's overall not as much pressure um and there's not as much overall habitat you think you take here on the prairie um man just from where i'm sitting right now there's all kinds of places for ducks to go set down and you know it's hard for you don't see the big concentrations moving together as one as much even like casey's place when he's holding a lot of ducks um it's you know twos and fours and fives because they got a lot they get up off the rest area they have lots of opportunity Mm -hmm. yeah yeah well and and it's it'll be interesting as as social media expands the you know, the awareness that there is this fantastic hunting in other places. Cause, and we've done a show on it. I've, I've gone to Kansas, I've gone to Oklahoma to hunt and, 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 you know, their history is long. Uh, it's, it just now all of a sudden is at the forefront because more people are finding out about it. So it'll be interesting to see if that trickles to, you know, the Montana's, the Idaho's, uh, Oregon, uh, some of these other places that have, have really long history of really good mallard hunting. It's just, different and, and hasn't carried the cachet or had the branding that maybe an Arkansas has had. Uh, but is it going to, is it going to track that tourism piece like we have here? Uh, that'll be interesting to see because Kansas and we, you know, some of the couple of different shows we've done on it is facing a real shortage of opportunity um, because of more people coming there to hunt and mm. more people coming there to hunt has led to more outfitters, more outfitters. means more, 
non-residents. It means more uh, gobbling up of leases and knocking on doors and all the things they can do there that you know we can't do here. Um, I hope some of that, you know, uh, big gaps between the next hunting party, like like you hear about and see in Montana. I hope that kind of kind of stays because that that's almost like a in a whole nother way. It's a classic style of of waterfowling that's been going on for you know century and a half that uh, people are a lot of people are just now figuring out yes absolutely and and more folks are going to go there um as our duck hunting culture expands you know we just came off uh wings over prairie festival and world championship duck calling contest weekend and i i'm sure y'all were doing the same thing i was counting all the people pulling boats around you know mm-hmm. um big fancy pickups pulling fancy duck boats and you could go the river, White River, and run up down the river, but there's no water in the woods anywhere that I'm aware of. Um, and, and I heard of people, you know, that just hunt the riverbank or just an opportunity to go, just looking for opportunity. And and you talk to somebody around here and you tell them that duck hunter numbers are half of what they were in the mid seventies. They look at you like you've got three eyeballs. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it's it's good that folks want to come here, and it's good that that we got people that want to continue to be duck hunters. Um, however, duck hunter numbers are dwindling. So, uh, where where is that balance, and how how does that work in the long run? I don't know. I do not have an answer for it. No, I, I wonder sometimes. You know, why numbers are dwindling. We just talked about all these other places that you've traveled and, and where other people may want to go. You know, you've got guys that now, because of the internet, because of everything else we have, they're hunting multiple states. So we've got fewer hunters, but I think every hunter's imparting more pressure than they used to. Um, mm-hmm. And that's my theory, anyway. But I'm glad you glad you brought up dwindling hunter numbers and the calling contest because I wanted to talk to you about that. Talk to us about kind of the evolution you've seen in the calling circuit over the years. Is that something that's, you know, there's there's different categories now there's cut down there's meat there's all these things what's changing in that and is it losing steam or is it building steam both so it's a great <laughs> question and it's 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 boy this is a tough one to get through and again we're all trying to find the answers but when you look at uh what what would be termed as main street duck calling the actual world's championship in Stuttgart um, has kind of developed its own style and sound over the years. And it's been going on since 1935 when Thomas Welsh wanted as a, using his natural voice to now, um, it's loud and big ring and hail calls and there's a lot to it. Um, and it's fun. And in my opinion is the highest discipline of the duck calling competitiveness competition world. But to your point, so I'm also a big part of what we call the world cut down championship. And that's, you know, you have to use a call that is either developed from a modified D2 Oat or a D2 Oat. We've got kind of some special rules there that you have to blow a certain type of call under certain parameters. And that is growing immensely. Uh, this past year, we held the world cut down event at the Delta Waterfowl Convention in Little Rock, and we had 58 callers. Now, granted, nobody has to qualify to get there. You just sign up and and blow and they had we had 56 callers at the world's championship this past weekend now each one of those folks had to win a contest to have the opportunity to compete so that's kind of a little bigger deal there's there's more out there trying to qualify for it so it's a bigger pool than what it 
what it sounds like. And then, then, of course, you got your live duck contest and meat calling, and they're all kind of similar, you know. So a live duck should be just that. A guy should be trying to emulate the sound of live matter ducks uh, on a feed, resting, or however you want to portray it. That's what you should portray. Meat calling is just that. How would you call it ducks while in a blind, used in, or in the woods or wherever you're hunting at? And then, of course, the cut-down deal is kind of a combination of all that, uh, you know, kind of way we tell folks is, you know, you're in the woods somewhere, break a bunch of ducks high, get them on the trees, lose them, call them back and land them. So it's kind of got a little structure to it, but you have to use a certain style call. The interesting thing is back when I was really competing hard uh, through the 90s and the early 2000s, you'd go to a big regional, say the Cash River Regional here in Arkansas, and you'd have 25, 30 callers. Um, you'd go to the U.S. Open uh Year first year I won the U.S. Open when it was in Memphis was you know fifty six fifty seven callers. Um, nowadays you go to those same regionals and there's five to fifteen. Uh, the DU regional in Texas this year they gave five thousand dollars away. There was only like there was less than ten contestants. Now oh, wow. there were three or four guys there that were really good. So we're all trying to figure out why there's it, money doesn't drive people to it. So we're trying to figure out why we're losing duck collar numbers because it's a really fun thing to be a part. If this is your lifestyle, it's interesting to see the cut down thing gaining steam and main street meat calling live duck losing steam. And I don't know why that is. Um, I, I really don't. Um, I wish I had the answers for it because we're trying to figure it out because back to it, it is a pretty good sport. I, I have been lucky to make a living in the outdoor industry because of blowing in contests, winning the contests, kind of being in front of other companies or brands and, and, you know, working in that direction, you know, trying to figure out how to make a living in the outdoor industry and, and uh, guiding and blowing duck calls was a big part of what got me where I am today. If, if that's anywhere, but um, it's pretty cool. So uh, you hate to see it losing steam, you know, and, and there seems to be a different attitude around it to some with some folks I, I can't put my finger on what that is but it's certainly changing uh canada goose calling is another one used to be huge you know up in the midwest the tim grounds and sean yeah. Stahl, all those guys used to be huge and now that's not what it once was you know you go to the world goose in eastern maryland like there'll be a crowd there's still a good contest but it's not the people it once was so i don't know if that's people get their fix off of social media that they get what they want out of that, or maybe it's young folks, you know, here we go, we're going to pick on them again, not wanting to commit. Cause if you want to be good at it, you got to work at it. You, you're not going to win at every contest you go to. Um, and you're going to get kicked in the teeth, so to speak, you know, um, but you got to work at it. If you want to, you're going to work at it to try to get better and you got to commit to it. Maybe that's some of it. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm all ears. What y'all's thoughts? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I went to the 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 cut down contest at, at Delta and, and the crowd was huge. Uh obviously a ton of callers cuz it took it seemed like it took forever. And, and some of them uh, I mean to be frank, some of them did, didn't deserve to be on the stage. They just they paid the money and got to get up there and do it. Uh so right. some time was eaten up with that where you know at the world you got somebody like you said has won a contest. But let me ask you this, did it do is there a lot of crossover like the guy like I know Forrest Carver Hall that won won the world cut down this year is really not a cut down guy. Uh, you know, and, and he'll, he'll he said that when he won it. Um, 
he's more more of the main street style um but do you see it do you see a lot of crossover and and, and is that crossover creating there's an upper tier kind of like there is in football there's the alabamas and the georgias and the you know the clemsons and Mm-hmm. And all those in the con contest world. So the other guys, man, I'm not, I can't, I'm not better than he is. I, so I'm not going to commit to, you know, all the practice and all, all the routine, all the feedback that requires to, to do that discipline main street style, like you're talking about. Um, so you, are you seeing guys that are just kind of bowing out? Maybe that, maybe that's part of their bowing out. Cause there's a, there's a level that they just don't feel like they can, they can touch. And so mm-hmm. I, I'll try one of these other ones or, so but it kind of spreads them out. Yeah, I think there's some of that for sure. Um, Forrest is a good example. And, and man, he, you know, as an MC of the event, I, I knew he blew good when he was there. Just knew he had. Um, and he blew okay this past weekend, you know. And I, I don't know if he made the final 10 or not, but um, he blew good this weekend uh, at the Worlds. Uh, one of the events, I remember judging him and talking to him about something um but to your point i think that's a lot of it a lot of guys are like man I, i'm not gonna win anyway so i'm not even gonna try you know I, I think that's some of it there is a little crossover there's a few guys that that do well on both sides of the ball so to speak um daniel dukes won three world cut downs he's been several top tens top five finishes in 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 the main street world um you know he he's one that plays both sides well Forrest does but there's a lot of other guys that just that the cut down thing is their thing. And they're young guys that don't really they've they're learning the history of what the modified old style call is and what it does. Um, but they're young guys that just have come on to it. And it's kind of been kind of the end thing the past few years. So that, that's been interesting to see people kind of pick their sides. Um, and it's, it's fun to be a part of it and listen to them and see where they go with it. Yeah, that that is interesting to me, you know, how in vogue the the cut down is currently. Uh, I remember my grandfather, you know, blew a D2 old forever. And and I can remember 30, 40 years ago, everybody kind of giving him a hard time about blowing that old raspy old, you know. It was not it was not in style for a period that was soft and quiet. You know, that's kind of what gave rise to the the timbre or timber call that R and T was doing. Mm-hmm. It was kind of transitioned, but now it's it's come back full steam, and you do you see a lot of that younger crowd gravitating to that, and that's cool because it's definitely a a piece of our culture and history. So it's nice to see that resurgence of, of that type call and that style. Uh, but it's interesting that it's driven that, and then you know in the in the guiding world, you had a lot of that. You know, people were were hung onto those and passed on that tradition of calling, and I think that's maybe where we're seeing this ground surge from. I think that's exactly right. You know, I know a D2 old was my first duck call and I got away from it. And of course, contest thing and rich and tone, R&T and, you know, but that was always kind of my backup go-to. And there was a handful of guides around this part of the world that were always successful and they, they blew that style call and, and did very well. And I think that's where a lot of it came from for sure. You know, and, and we kind of made it more popular. Um, kind of a funny story about the Mondo and R and T. We were we were doing a pro staff hunt. This would have been I forget what year it was, uh early two thousands, maybe getting somewhere around up close to two thousand eight or nine. Anyway, I hadn't moved from Holly Grove to over here at the time. So we had big water in the White River bottoms and 
Johnny was taking some folks to the farm. I was taking some folks to the bottoms and come back. And one of the guys, we'd shot some ducks. One guy said, man, what is that black called? Jimbo blows. said, man, that sucker sounds good. And Johnny told me, he said, man, if you wasn't such a good friend of mine, I'd take a hammer and bust that thing into a gazillion pieces. <laughs> so that, that kind of led to let's build one, you know, kind of thing. So, um, and there were other people starting to, too, but that kind of turned into um, what it is now, I think, a lot. I think that was kind of the beginning stages of some of that. Um, and they're just different. You know, sometimes I, I used to would tell you unequivocally that ducks reacted to them differently. Now I think there's so many of them out there. It's kind of like a spinner, you know. Mm-hmm. They, unless you, If you're around here where everybody's blowing them, they, they don't have the same effect they once had probably um but it's kind of like everything else it still works and as a duck caller and duck hunter we all tend to lean to what we're confident in and what you feel comfortable with so um i'm glad to see it still going but it's fun to see changes you know my buddy sean Stahl, who's still at rnt um he, he has a comment he says it's not so much always evolution but revolution you know and that's mm-hmm. kind of what you just hit at case and about you know, your granddad blowed a D2. It's what I love about all the old pictures in the camp, but it's kind of not evolved into that. It's revolved back to it, you know? So that, that I think that's cool. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It, 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 it kind of lines with the bringing back, you know, the, the McAllister's and the, the Tom Beckby's and the, uh, you know, the other brands that are yep. doing this vintage wear. And then you bring them back on a kind of an old school. Cause I grew, I grew up hunting in the Crockett's Bluff river bottoms and all those, dudes blew d2s back then and hailing on those you know sky high little specks in the sky ducks mm-hmm. uh to get them in those bottoms uh you know so to see it come back is pretty cool and and we want to we want to circle back because you brought up your your guiding days and, and we definitely want to talk about some of that because you've got some cool stories and experiences and, and there's probably a, a contingency of people that are listening to the show that have no idea that you ever did that uh they mm-hmm. you know they associate you with the calling world and 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 the TV show and all that but uh you know that was obviously a big piece of your past but specific to a duck call okay uh you know the ones we're buying off the shelf you know now I'm going to buy one off the shelf and then I'm going to I'm going to monkey with it to get it like I like it mm-hmm. uh you know back when I was younger I'd take it in let butch monkey with it and I'd go mm-hmm. outside blow it go back in he you know he'd snip here do this do that uh on a on a contest call you know, the call that you're going to go, I'm, this is the call I'm going to use uh, this weekend at the Worlds. How much are you modifying that from what comes off the shelf? Or is it nothing like the call that comes off the shelf? Uh, you know, back back in the day when you were blowing Main Street competitions, mm-hmm. how much were you tweaking and what were you tweaking on those those calls? Not, not as much as you might think. You know, um, you pretty much need to tune the call for you, whether it's a, whether it's an old or a main street contest call, but that was pretty much it. So I'd find one I liked and, you know, that fit good and they all feel a little different, you know, as you well know, you know, anytime, anytime you hand tune something and you sand it on it, even after it comes off the machine, they're not all going to be exactly alike. And each duck call has its own little personality. Um, but for example, the call I won the main street with, um, that year I was trying to find a call I liked and, um, man had was struggling with some, this is the early days of the MVP and, um, just trying to find something that, that worked and struggling. And, and John and I worked on one and a, a blew pretty good and we sanded on it just a little bit 
you know, pretty finite adjustments and got it to where I really like it. And, and it's still guys will still borrow it to blow it today. Um, but not as much. So you get a contest call off the shelf from whoever makes it, whether you're at R and T or echo or REM or refuge or whoever, those calls should be relatively close right out of the box. Now you'll probably have to change the read length a little bit. You may have to do a little bit of hand work to change something, but not necessarily a great deal. Um, maybe read trimming a little different, maybe hit the tone board in places, but not, you shouldn't have to do a lot. Yeah. So you're not boring. You're not boring anything out. You're just, no. you're just making those fine adjustments. You bet. You bet. Yeah. You know, you start messing with the bore and that's, you start changing back pressure up, especially on a main street type call. Um, they can get where they run pretty wild, make them harder and harder to control. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, and of course you're always trying to get more volume. Everybody wants to be louder than the next guy, but you got to do that within reason. And for, with a duck call, I say this to a lot of people, you know, what, whose law is it for every action? There's an equal and opposite reaction. Um, with a duck call, there may be an opposite, but it may not be equal. So if you add the top, you may take away from the bottom. If you add bottom, you may take away from the top. Um, or you may, you may add bottom and not only take away from the top, maybe lose not only volume, but tone. So, you know, it's not always an equal reaction. See, there's a, there's a balance with a, with a main street call, even a, a good hunting call. If it's set up right, there's a balance between top and bottom and how that call fits you and how you are able to fit it. Uh, you know, I, I tell folks starting off, just go get a duck call and learn to blow it. Just learn good mechanics and learn to blow it. Don't try to buy a duck call that fits you. You learn to blow the call. Once you learn to blow a call, then you start trying to fit the call better to you to get more out of it, if that makes any sense. So it's kind of like calling ducks. You got to call at them before you can call to them. So once you, mm-hmm. once you can call to them, then it's a different deal. Yeah. That, and part of that is, and I think this is the way a lot of people look at duck duck calls is they'll go, you know, say the the counter there at max and oh let me let me get that one. Let me try that one. They'll blow it, go, ah, no. Let, let me try that one. Ah, no. And then or they buy one, they get it, and they go, ah, no, this is not the call for me. Not knowing you really should have somebody knows what they're doing. Make the tw- little tweaks to that call. And a it a call probably because it sounds right for somebody or they wouldn't sell it. That's right. You got to have a tweak for you. That's a good point. And I tell folks like now I still tune some calls, you know, folks will send them in and whatnot. I always like them to come by to pick them up. Even when I was at R&T, if you can listen and watch somebody blow a duck call, you can normally get it to where they like it, you know, and talk to them. Uh, Watching somebody blow a duck call, they'll go, oh, yeah, it's all right. You can tell when they're lying and when they're not. So when somebody really likes one and it fits them good, they light up, man. You can just see it in their eyes and their face. They light up. They like it. If they're just okay, yeah, you can see it. Um, and normally you don't get them all, but normally you can get it dialed in for a guy. So I always tell them that too. Find one you like, then blow it. Then let's dial it in for you. So it fits you and then go from there. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now they've come out with a Loadout 30 Go Box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one, and then I've got another one that I use during duck season 
that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when hand rained in a while. It's a amazing product. Yeah. So I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the, the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently. And it's great to, to use that 15 as an ammo box. So I've got all the kids, ammo, gauge reducers, hand warmers, whatever they're going to need in one box. And all I've got to do is grab it and I'm ready to take them out in the woods. Yeah. The Yeti Go box is is definitely the way to go and keep it organized, accessible and protected. And it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must have for waterfowl season. Like it. Well, Jimbo, switching gears here a little bit, we, we may have come out of this a, a backwards timeline, but you know, you and I both make a living in the outdoor world and got our start in similar ways. Um, what what have you seen change wise in the guiding business? I know you got your start there. Tell us a little bit about your background and maybe how that side of the sport has changed. Yeah, boy, it's, that's a lot. So you know, I, I always enjoyed being outside. You know, grew up in a hunting family like everybody else did that, that does this kind of stuff. Well, not anymore, not everybody. Anyway, I like the idea of trying to find a place to hunt. So I got into the guiding business, working with other guide services because I knew I, I wasn't, didn't have family ground to hunt. Couldn't really afford a lease to go lease something on my own. Well, of course, liked hunting public, but tried to find, a, it was kind of a means, a ways to a means, so to speak. So mm-hmm. I was working for a guide business out of Jonesboro and wound up starting the guide service with Butch's, um, permission we called it rich and tone guide service um so started that in 1994 so at that time we could still commercial hunt on state and federal ground along with the private ground we had leased and that was kind of the ways and means to afford to have some nice private ground to hunt and afford some boats to be able to go to the river and whatnot and i really enjoyed meeting new folks and taking folks on you know you sure you had some people that you may not have got along with as well as others, but for the most part, most folks were really good people. Um, a couple of the changes since th- those days were, you know, I think when we started, I think it was $75 a gun. Um, and you either met me at a farm shop or I met you at a gas station somewhere in town. We'd be going to the river or, or something. Um, so you don't see hardly any of that anymore, you know, and of course we can't, Nobody can commercial hunt on the state or federal ground, and that's probably a good thing. Um, but that's a whole nother rabbit hole to get into. But what you don't see as much anymore, while around here there's a lot of people in the commercial hunting business, there's not too much of the old school day hunt operations like we were. Now I had some folks that had a place if we needed to put somebody up for you know a full meal deal, you know lodging, accommodations, food, the whole works. We could do that. But for the most part, I was what I called a day hunt operation. You either, like mm-hmm. I said, you either met me in a farm shop um, or if we were going to the bottom somewhere, I'd meet me at such and such gas station, such and such town or whatever. Um, you don't see that like you used to. And then the commercial hunting side of things is, is so more competitive. I, you know, I, there seems to be so many. You take, we talk about speck hunting or duck hunting. You just look around from Stuttgart to the Missouri line or really from 
the Louisiana line to the Missouri line, all the people in the commercial hunting business, um, you see them all the time. And I think a lot of that are guys that want to do it for the reasons I got into it. Um, either one opportunity to hunt, one to try to make a living in the outdoor industry. And I just wonder if we've not gotten too many of them. I don't know. I'm not saying we have. I don't want, I'm not, not trying to be negative at all, but it is different. And the cost has changed considerably in that time frame. Um, you know, I've, I've, I'm hearing the folks getting, you know, $1,200 a day. Um, mm-hmm. and you hear of leases that are exorbitant and are they consistent? You know, I, I don't know. I'm there. There's a lot of changes that have gone on, but people still support them or these folks wouldn't be able to continue to move forward. So I guess the biggest changes I've seen is the attitude around it. Um, man, I just wanted to go hunting. I wasn't trying to boot nobody out or race anybody. Uh, these folks were put their trust in me to try to show them a good hunt and maybe teach them something. And I enjoyed that part of it. I wasn't trying to race anybody to anywhere. I, I wasn't about being in front of people. I told somebody the other day, you know, I still hunt public some and still see the boat race and all that. And I always did my best to stay out of it. Um, I always told folks I like boat riding, but I don't necessarily like boat racing. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I like a nice spirited boat ride, but I'm not out there to try to beat somebody. Um, that's not, it's not my thing. Uh, yeah. But it, that part has changed. It's all, you know, got to get to the whole faster, you know, um, met a guy a couple years ago and, and both of you've probably heard me tell this story. Well, I was still at RT and there's, I was working a Saturday afternoon or something. Um, this is my turn in the, in the tuning shed for, for whatever reason. Yeah. Nice young man come in, was talking and, um, he was, a uh, played football, D2 college ball. And, you know, he wasn't going to be able to go pro, but he really loved to duck hunt. And I said, man, this is a really nice guy, you know, and he said, man, he said, look, public ground duck hunt. And he said, that's my, that's my Friday night lights for my Saturday afternoons, man, trying to beat somebody to the hole or where I need to shoot ducks, whatever I got to do to beat you to that spot. I'm going to do it every way I legally can. And I thought, man, really? I mean, <laughs> I get, we want a good hole. We want to be in a good spot. We want a good opportunity, but has it came to that? And I, I hear more and more people, it's about the chess game with other duck hunters rather than trying to be under the ducks. It's how do we beat, man, I know Kaysen's going to be in the snag hole, him and his buddies. So we got to figure out how to beat him there and do this and do that. And man, I just want to go hopefully call it some ducks and watch my dog work, you know, and entertain some folks. But um, I, I think that competitiveness has changed or maybe I just see it more now. I don't know. Yeah. Well, man, you you said a lot there. I think a lot of people forget that most of us that guide do it because we like people and we and we like hunting with people. And it's I think that's lost on a lot of people. You know, I think uh I think some people blame the the cost of leases or anything else. They blame it on the most of the guide businesses, but I don't know that that's the case. I, I wonder if it if the inverse is true. The the reason that cost has gone up so much is because everything else has gone up too. So a guide service is providing a service that's now worth more because everything else is harder to obtain. I mean, when we started in well 53, said. when we started in 53, we charged ten dollars a head. You know, I mean, and that's a we're a far cry from that now. But I wonder if it's kind of the opposite, you know, and 
I don't know the competitive no, I, side of it. Go go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I don't. I think you're on something there. I, I think everybody wants those opportunities, right? So, um, land prices in general, they're not making any more of it. And mm-hmm. if it's a really good, consistent place, you know, there's there's some value there for sure. And there's more and more people. This is the tricky part to your inverseness, which I think you're right. Even though there's less duck hunters, we hit on this earlier. Those of us who are involved in it, either we travel more or we invest more or, you know, we have more recreational property or we're trying to lease ground to be able to enjoy what we have without having to fight the crowds. So I think it's a I think it's a vicious circle of sorts. But I think you're right. You know, I think you're on something. You you opened the door to something else there that we may not want to walk through, but I'm going to mention it anyway. So we this came up in our previous podcast, and people kind of misunderstood what Brent and I were saying. And then our last episode was specifically about public ground. So I kind of want to ask you, you said, when you're talking about guides on public ground, you said it was probably good that they ended that. And I remember, well, I remember that debate. I remember all the screaming and cussing about all that when it was going on. And it seems like no matter what, what the rules are, regulations on private uh, public ground, there's always drama. So it may, it may take you a minute to gather your thoughts because I've got some thoughts on it too, but elaborate on that, that you think it's probably better. And that's not, I'll say this before you answer anything. None of us are advocating to legalize guiding on public ground anymore, but I think there are some feelings that I don't know. Not that it was better, but it was just different. I, I, I know exactly have. what you're saying. And that's why I said <laughs> probably better because I didn't yeah. want to get tarred and feathered. Um, right. So uh, for all y'all are listening to this that, that are anti-commercial hunting on public ground, know this as, as a past commercial guide on public ground. I understand exactly what you're saying and what you're thinking. However, that being said, I'm probably going to get tarred and feathered now. Um, we'll, and I'm we'll not, have to edit this after we after we get down the road. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not advocating they they open it back up either. Um, I, I think nowadays I don't know what would happen. It would probably be bad. That's why I say it's probably better off. But there were some aspects uh, of that that were good. There was a little bit of honor amongst the guides, a little bit of self policing that was going mm-hmm. on. Um, there was some communication now. Yeah. Was there drama? Yeah. There was always some drama. There was always some bad blood. Um, I said, or not bad blood, bad emotions, I guess, but there were points of it that made it work. And I think that's what you're leaning on. I I don't want to get overly deep into that. So not all three of us don't get tarred and feathered. (laughs) Um, but there was a point of it that worked really well. And, you could argue that if they would have tightened up those regulations more like Alaska or, or, um, um, Africa or something to where if you were commercial hunting on public ground, you had to be several different types of certifications, you know, duck ID, mm-hmm. um, first responder stuff, CPR, you know, quite a bit of training to go into it to, to make it real. Um, maybe a bigger price tag that maybe had to be, you had to maybe pass a test. You had to, you know, maybe made it a lot more to it instead of the wild, wild west may have, it may have been a good program. Um, 
you think the, there you go. do you think the do you think the competitiveness that we see now did do you think that spawned out of the you know because guys you know back in those days they had hole runners and you know they kind of and in some degree bully their way around the ramp and everything else do you think that perpetuate this this competitiveness and this boat racing and this beat everyone to the hole do you think that spawned out of all that i do i do i I tried to for the record when i was running on my own i I, the customers went with me you know so um back in the day you couldn't enter the refuge they changed it now to 4 a.m it was a 5 a.m deal on cashier refuge and I had two boats and if we had five, everybody rode, rode in at the same time. Um, and you know, if somebody was where you wanted to go, you'd go somewhere else. And there was a little bullying went on at the same time. There was a little self-policing too, or, you know, trying to work together. That's why I said if, and it did probably spawn everything that goes on today. Cause you know, some of the aspects of that were kind of fun, you know, the, what maybe started the boat racing for sure. But if, if they, if, Big if here, and I'm not advocating for this either, so don't send me any hate mail, please. Um, <laughs> but if you were to take it and, and highly regulate it to where you had to pass a test, you had to be CPR certified, you had to have first aid, you know, first responder, first aid training, um, you know, get all the permits you could. You know, there was some talk when they outlawed it about Coast Guard, you know, we were running up white river with folks that were paying you to be in a vessel. Mm-hmm. There was a good argument there that that was regulated under the coast guard and you needed at least a six pack license for that opportunity or to be able to do that. So there was a lot of things there, but if you took a person that passed the test, duck ID, everything, us fish and wildlife service, game and fish, all the permits and offered a true service. There's an argument there that if you had a few of those guys there, that worked hand in hand with the administrative side of fish and wildlife for game and fish. That could be maybe a good program. Um, and I emphasize maybe there, right. But you'd have to have the right people doing it. And for the right reasons, it couldn't be about, you, you couldn't do it just because you thought, Oh man, this is cool. You, you truly would have to be the type of person that, wanted folks to enjoy the area, be able to have some natural history education about them, about what they're getting to see and what they're getting to be a part of, um, be able to talk to bottom and hardwood forest a little bit, be able to talk about the geographic history of the area and be able to talk about ducks and duck calling and guns and boats and be a person that could, you know, take somebody that's never been before that wants the opportunity that pays taxes on the refuge system, just like we all do from New York city and be able to show them a good time and explain it to them and, and them enjoy it and get something out of it. You'd have to be that type of person. If you were just out there cause you thought it was going to get you a better duck hole or get you in good favor with game and fish, that's the wrong reason. You'd have to do it for all the right reasons. And you couldn't, there couldn't be many. Well, I think that's the interesting viewpoint there that that you and I both share, whether it be public or private, we are providing 
access or opportunity to this resource, be it on private ground or in, in this hypothetical situation, public ground. And I think maybe that's kind of where you and I are coming from on this. Um, not not advocating to legalize this thing, not saying it would be better, but there were some aspects that were. And I don't know that it's better now. Let's let's take New York as an example. You, you've got a guy, him and his son want to come to Arkansas and they want to experience the public woods of Arkansas. Were they better off in 1985 with a guide or are they better off in 2023 today running a, a race or whatever they've got to do to get to a hole? How do they get that access in a better, safer, more enjoyable manner? And I think to your point, there's the potentiality for a better service and experience. Uh, and again, I'm not advocating to go back to that, but but Britt and I've talked about it before. I definitely think the outfitter business in Arkansas is in need of some direction because it's, it's kind of the wild West. Anybody can do it. They need no, no background, no education, no special, nothing other than a cheap permit. And it's, we need to look at it as a whole that we are providing access to an opportunity for a resource. And it's, it's more than just come on boys, let's go on the hunt. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, I'm going to add on to it back to your analogy of the, you know, father and son from New York. Uh, they're not going to make that trip every year. Um, now, sure, there's there's the outliers who got a boat and motor rig and they're going to make the trip and come enjoy it. No different than somebody from here wanting to go out west and do a, a do it yourself elk hunt in the Rocky Mountains and that, you know, they rent horses or take their own horses or whatever. That's a cool thing. But for somebody who just wants to come experience it once or twice, it doesn't make sense for them to make the investment and they one, they don't know where they're going. Um, they may or may not have had much experience in boat promoters in that type of environment there. And you could argue that, man, they pay taxes just like everybody else does. Why can't we have somebody help us out and pay them for a service? I, I don't know. Again, I'm not advocating. I'm just throwing subjects out there. Sure. Yeah. Well, Chris Harrell in our last episode brought up a good example. He talked about watching a, a raft of ducks go down in the woods. He's out in the channel, you know, watching it, trying to figure out how to get to him the next day. And somebody rolls up and drives right through the woods, busts the whole raft out, runs right through the middle of them. Well, maybe that guy was from out of state and didn't know the etiquette of how we hunt public and how we do things, you know. So I guess that's kind of where I see that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that things are wholesale better because we got rid of that old system. Now that old system was broken and it wasn't working, but I don't know. There's some room for improvement you, on all sides. I think you said it really good. It, we're not any, it's not wholesale better, but the previous was broken. I, that, was, that was well said. Now, that might keep us from getting both tarred and feathered. Um, yeah. I'm trying to give you an out here so that you'll come back <laughs> on our show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, that that was good, but it's all good points, you know. And it, now, now we're going to move on from that a little bit to just pressure disturbance. You mm -hmm. know, I always try to scout. I always try to scout. I'd go in the afternoon right up the river. You know, where are ducks at? What, what are they doing? But you know, you go run through the middle of them. The disturbance is pressure too, as much as shooting into them. So you, now you wonder why, well, man, I ain't no ducks in the woods. Well, because we're running all through the woods all afternoon, looking around scouting. Um, yeah. You know, that that's whole that's a whole nother subject, but that would be one of those things that you could help educate somebody on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I I wouldn't make the assumption too that that those dudes that 
that rolled off the main channel into the woods were out of state either. <laughs> I mean, no, 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 no. There, there are plenty of knuckleheads that, that reside within the borders of Arkansas that are that are causing some issues. And as uh, as we all know and have heard uh, and seen, uh, you, I mean, you just yeah. you just see it. So I, you know, I don't want to just blame everything on our out of state friends. And, and hey, some of the some of the best hunters I've been around are out of staters and. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about traveling. I've, I've traveled a lot, hunted both public and private in other states. So I have been that out-of-stater hunting public ground in somebody else's state and always try to be cognizant of that as, a, you know, we're all guests everywhere, you know. So I always try to be cognizant of that and talk to folks and and try to stay out of the way the best I can and still enjoy a good hunt, you know. So, um I think that's good for all of us, you know, just we're, we're duck hunters. And and here's the other thing too. When you talk about waterfowl, now granted we're, we live in a, as a duck hunter, we live in a very, one of the greatest spots on earth to live if we're duck hunters. That said, we're talking about a resource that is continental in scope. They're not just, they don't just belong to the state of Arkansas or Mississippi or Louisiana or Missouri or Kansas or Oklahoma or Texas or wherever you may chase them. This is a continental resource that travels from north to south to different countries, even to South America. You take about a blue wing teal. So we're something continental to global in resource, and we're trying to manage what happens all right here. You know, how do you balance the difference between the people and the resource and have people understand that they just don't belong to just us in this state or that state. I think a lot of people lose sight of that. Well, I'm I'm glad both y'all kind of came to the defense of non-residents. Uh, I certainly didn't want it to seem like we were blaming them because the resident hunters cause as much problem as anybody else. You know, it's, it's a two-way street. Um, so saying that, since we're all, you know, grabbing the third rail of duck hunting here, uh, how do you guys feel about the non-resident ban if you will or the the reduced days reduction of days um where do you weigh in on that on on state ground here, here's kind of the issue and i understand why they do it especially on state ground here's i'm probably gonna get tarred and feathered again um i'm sorry folks but i just gotta be honest here the the and i understand it i get it. i get why the commission has done that but on the topic Every state WMA sign, whether you're by me to hurricane, black swamp, wherever, at the top of the sign, it says a federal aid project. Now, I'm, I'm probably going to get lots of hate mail for this, but we wouldn't have a lot of these areas if it wasn't for federal dollars put into them. Um, and somebody that bought a box of shells in Indiana and whatever taxes they paid that went into that may have gone to the help the purchase of some of our state areas. While I understand folks that are adamant about feeling that they're losing their opportunity on their state-owned lands, I get that. And, and I absolutely get that. However, we need to understand where it all came from now. I'm not advocating the change, and I think what they're doing is is fair to a point because everybody gets an opportunity. So 
they're not taking opportunity away. They're just limiting opportunity. And that's the only way you can reduce pressure is limit opportunity. That said, Brent, you may, you, you, you may be more up to speed than I am, but I think every waterfowl, major waterfowl WMA in Arkansas was originally started with federal dollars. Am, am I correct there? Uh, and I may be wrong. If I'm wrong, I'll admit I'll, I'll, I'll take it. But it definitely definitely played a role. Yeah. Um, again, I, I want to preface that that I, I don't claim to know everything. So depending on how bad the tar and feather is coming, I I'm, I'm confident that it, there were federal dollars at least all of them. Whether it started there or not, I don't know. Um, and I probably should. But there's there's an argument for everything, Casey. You know. There's two sides to every story and every coin. And with the non-resident thing, I don't know how I feel about it because with all the federal ground we have, I, I think a lot of what it's done is if you can't go hunt state ground, if I'm from coming up here from wherever, come over from Georgia to enjoy a week or two of duck hunting, and I, I hit where I can hunt state ground, now I can't hunt state ground, and we mm-hmm. got good water conditions, that's just going to put more of a crowd on the federal ground. That's right. Um, you know, so I, that, that's kind of where I wonder about it. Um, he, 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 kind of like he robbed Peter to pay Paul. Um, but I don't have an answer on how to fix all that at all. Cause I, I do understand trying to give state residents more opportunity on what is now state owned property. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I think yeah. the game of fish is, uh, aware that this current format of these locked in windows uh, that they can come is dumping more pressure on the, on the refuges, the federal ground to where there's gotta be a, just some tweaking in there as to how we can spread that out and, and maybe manage that, especially when you're in a low water year and things like things like we're experiencing where that, you know, there's, there's not expansive habitat, say in the white river bottoms. And, and you know, there's probably very, very little actually, uh, maybe some little lakes and stuff like that have water right now, but they're probably pretty, pretty low too. So everybody's cramming into one spot, but uh, you know, I, I definitely uh, believe it's on their radar um, and, and continue to try to improve that experience because and we say this all the time. We've said it on numerous episodes previously, we cannot underestimate how important it is for us in Arkansas to have and continue to perpetuate the non-resident hunter coming here Mm -hmm. you know we can't support the fifty thousand in-state duck hunters that in modern day you know arkansas duck hunting we cannot financially support what the ducks need that come here um because no we 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 need them we need that economic impact absolutely and that that's where i think the 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 catch is with a lot of people you know um again you, you take person that that hunts by meat all the time and you tell him when he's trying to put his boat in two days after christmas and we've had a couple good fronts and by meat is full of water and you tell him that there's less duck hunters now than there was in the mid 70s again he's going to look at you like you got three eyeballs but in the big picture things and you look at our loss of duck energy days across the state across all the wonderful potential waterfowl habitat we have our duck energy days are down um we have places where we can increase habitat, but we need dollars to do that. Our, you know, bottomland hardwoods or infrastructures need worked on, need changed. Um, so we don't lose everything that we've got that made it so great. We need those people and we need to figure out how 
everybody can get along and work together moving forward. And I, I don't have those answers, but conversations like this and getting people to listen to it and maybe somebody comes up with a good idea. I really hate to see us go to a draw system on our public grounds. I know that's maybe someday what may has to happen. You know, again, if you want to reduce pressure, you got to reduce opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. But reducing opportunity, you got to have opportunity to make people want to come. So I, I hate to see that draw happen. Um, and then if you don't do, if you do a draw on state ground, how do you do a draw on federal ground? How many different places can we go slide a boat in the river and hunt the wider Cache River Refuge? You know, I, I don't have the answers for that, but I do know we need the dollars. And with a dwindling supply of federal duck stamp sales, I think last year, oh, we figured that there was probably just less than a million active duck hunters that bought a federal duck stamp. Um, maybe just over a million sold. But, you know, some of them are going to collectors and birders and whatnot. So as we start losing dollars into the fund, when you look at the the North American model of wildlife conservation, not only waterfowl conservation, as that pairs down to the uh, North American waterfowl management plan and federal duck stamp dollars and all that, what drives it is us that partake in the support yearly. As we lose those folks, we lose dollars, we lose habitat opportunities. We're not taking care of ducks as well. You know, it's it's a slippery slope. So we need people to be involved. Well, and I think that's what that's what really alarms me when we start restricting access or opportunity. Um, it's just a slippery slope. And especially now that we, we kind of see that, you know, we're shifting some of these guys off of state ground on the federal ground. It's, it's maybe not having its desired result. And we're taking access away. So when does it become a draw system? I, I think that's where I come at it from. It, it's the same as anything else. Once you get government regulation involved, it's kind of like gun control. You know, once you once you give an inch, they don't usually give it back to you. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of leery of, of where we could be headed with that. But um, enough with the the tar and feathering topics. Let's let's get something <laughs> fun going here. Uh, there you go. <laughs> one of the already... things. Yeah, go ahead. I saw, I already I hadn't even checked my email. This hadn't aired yet, so we're okay yeah, for just now. <laughs> give it a few days; it'll blow up. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I always get asked: people always want to hear stories from God, and I don't know what it is that attracts people to those stories, but it's I get that asked all the time when I'm guiding. So I'm going to throw you under the bus here. Tell us, uh, tell us one of your memorable stories from the guide business. Oh man, there's several of them. Um, all of them good. All of them good. Um, one, y'all will get a kick out of this. We're just talking about where, where the juxtaposition of the state of Arkansas is it applies the, to to waterfowl and migrations. And back in the guiding days, one one of our most productive places was a was a great big old dead in it, um, big old dead break. And you know, one time it was green timber, now it's dead. And you know, we, that's a whole other subject. But you know, we get a big rain, the water would come up in the creek or, you know, dry years, you and the beavers would try to come up with some sort of a plan to work together that they kept you water, but you could get across their dams. Anyway, make a long story short, we was hunting one day, having a great hunt and had some guys from South Carolina. We'd had, man, we'd, we'd had to shoot them up. Everybody had limits. We was back slapping, taking pictures and whatnot. And of course, back in, I, I, I was, I was, I was a Canada skull dipper. Um, Oh boy, asked me, just a serious heart attack. He said, Hey, Jimbo, 
He said, how bad does the tide affect this place? I just spit, <laughs> looked at him and said, man, not too much, partner. I said, the Gulf of Mexico is about 300 miles that way. It ain't bothering me a bit. <laughs> and, and he, he, he didn't quite know how to take that. And his buddies give him a hard time. Um, one, one of the others, you know, this is about the duck ID things. We come out of the same creek, run up there and had a old flat bottom stress boat with a, with a long shaft go devil on it and had the ducks laid out there on the boat seat. Old boy looked at me and, you know, yelling at me over the motor. So he's asking a question and pointing. And we had, we had a mixed bag teal, mallards, gab walls. I couldn't hear what he's saying. So I just, you know, I cut the motor and said, yes, sir. He said, Hey, Jimbo. He said, Man, them little ducks with the green stripe on their head. He said, are them baby mallards? I said, <laughs> I said no, sir. It'd be your basic green wing teal. Thank you. <laughs> you know, just, just things that I don't know. Um, um, another one that scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, um, I, I think the statute of limitations is over. Um, <laughs> on this deal. So I'm not going to mention any names, but a very good friend of mine was working with me. We was up at Black Swamp and this was been years ago when, you know, and you can remember, if y'all remember the last three days of duck season, you can hunt all day long publicly. Mm -hmm. um, so we are going to take a group of folks hunting into up, up Black Swamp. We'd get up there some. Uh, he said, man, I want to go check out this ridge up here. So, okay. So we get a bunch in, get another bunch in, we're shooting. And I hear direction he went and I hear him shoot. I said, like, hi, dang, man. And so we kind of woke, woke up. So my buddy come back with his limit and my limit and maybe starting on somebody else's. So it was one of the things, it was a good thing that we didn't shoot too many <laughs> or we'd have been in bad shape. But I was scared to death on that deal. So, oh my God, we're going to get in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> um, um, here's, here's one I tell on me that, that was a, uh, and wound up, becoming pretty good friends with them. Um, so in early days in guide service and hunting bottoms, you're supposed to have a special use permit. Um, and there, there's, there's a hole over there in the bottoms that I called it the big money hole because of this altercation. I learned a lot from it, but this is one on me that wasn't so good. And I'm surprised it hadn't come back around. So busy hunting, trying to, you know, we was hunting mornings and taking folks to the field in the afternoon if they didn't get their ducks in the morning and just doing too much, you know, things you learned. And I was hunting in the bottoms. And of course I knew you're supposed to have a special use permit back then along with your state guide license. Well, I had talked to the cash river office and I, yeah, you just need to get up here and get it. You know, okay. Okay. Well, you know, one thing leads to another. Well, you know, they know I'm trying to get it. Um, anyway, make a long story short. And of course y'all know the refuge permits you're supposed to fill out that each person's supposed to have it was my duty to make sure each one of the customers had one of them well i had a bundle of them on my dashboard in my truck but we take off up the river that morning i said oh crap man i didn't get them to fill out the permits and i hadn't been up there i said oh that'll be all right you know lo and behold we get up there man we're having a great hunt um and i hear i hear a boat motor jump a ridge and i'm ring 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 and I said hmm who's this well here come who is now a friend of mine jerry lynn griggs who time was a u.s fish and wildlife officer he's now retired great guy um just doing his job but he he asked me jimbo you got your special use permit oh, no but i'd talk to dennis about getting one um mm. so i got my state guidelines though so he said now you realize that that is a violation of federal lacy act 
and that's findable for up to you know 10 years in prison and ten thousand dollars or whatever of course i was I was about to tack out. I was shaking like a dog trying to poop a seed at this time. I said, I said, Jerry Lynn, I guess you better go sweep me off his box because I ain't got that kind of money. So all I got is time. Um, well, anyway, make the, we, we had to leave, quit hunt. And, of course, everybody got a ticket for not having a permit. So that cost me all that. Um, I paid all that. He, of course, didn't charge him. Um, just a bad deal. Um, went home. Of course, screwed up a perfectly good hunt. Anyway, wound up talking to folks and uh, wound up out, out of all that, besides paying just the fines for not having the, the daily permit, uh, I, all I had to do, I had a two-year, I couldn't be hunt or fish on Cash River Refuge for two years. Um, so I wasn't really proud of that moment at all. Uh, but now I've become friends with uh, Dennis Widener and Jaylen Griggs and um, everybody that, that's been up there that was along with that. Uh, Jonathan Winley, they're all buddies of mine. So it's always kind of funny that uh, that we do do that. We had a get together here a couple of years ago at the house for Jonathan Winley when he retired. And of course, Dennis Widener was here. And at the time, he was the project leader, Cash River Refuge or Central Arkansas Refuge Complex. And we were laughing about that, that here he was hanging out in the shop. And he he was the one that, that kept me off the refuge for two years. But everybody's good. And <laughs> that's one of the things I wish I'd never done, but it makes for a good story. I, when I hear people talk about, yeah, we just hunt the big money hole today. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it, it's cool that that, that name stuff. If they well. only knew the reason why. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that, you know, those are, those are honest mistakes. They happen. They've, you know, it's happened to all of us, but uh, it's, it's good that you can come out of it kind of on the other side. Cause uh, Lord knows there's enough outlaws out there running around those woods doing, doing who knows what. Um, to, to anything that walks, flies, crawls, swims, oh, <laughs> and everything absolutely. in between. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was just one of them deals of being stupid. You know, I was like, well, I called him, talked to him. I'm not trying to get around it. I just hadn't, you know, been up to the refuge office to buy him a permit. You know, it just is. You know, and then you forget other stuff. So uh, I can look back now and laugh about it. But, man, when it happened, I was I was scared to death. I thought, man, I'm going to go to jail um, I'm gonna be broke, you know. I thought all kinds of things. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. But it's yeah. At the same time, I, it, you think about that. So when I'm hunting, and I'm not saying it, I'm, I, I can still make a mistake, you know, and and, and have. But um, I try to make things sure I got everything I'm supposed to have wherever I go. Yeah, yeah. Because the the ticket can get, get a little little hefty for sure. Uh, it depends on what kind of mood you catch the the wildlife officer game more than that day as well. Uh, so I can, uh, I can understand that, but, uh, but man, this has been an awesome episode. Uh, it, you know, it's all, it's, this is the same conversations we have on the phone and, and when we're together in person and, and it's kind of cool to carry it over into a podcast episode, but we've, we've always got a question. We, we try to ask our guests if time allows. Um, so we got definitely got to throw this one your way and it may, may take you a, a beat to, come up with the answer that you want to come up with, or you, it may just rattle off the top of your head, but uh, we try to end it with asking our guests, you know, if there was one thing you could change in modern day waterfowling, what would it be? And so I'm going to, I'm going to throw that one at you and, and let you, let you answer it at your Ooh. leisure. Ooh, one thing you can change. Equipment, regulations, whatever. 
right. whatever. It could be anything. Mm, man. One thing. What's the one mostest thing I could change if I could change? Mm. I'm I'm getting ready for something groundbreaking here. No, I mean there's <laughs> there's just so many. There's just so many different things. Um well if you were starting to change I mean if you want I mean we all we all talk about you know things that we see going on, but uh, I mean there's one, man, if I could start with this, if we could do better at this or or whatever it yeah. is. If we could figure out I mean, I, there, there's some low-hanging fruit there. You know, I guess you could you could say even I don't want to be a hypocrite because I use one today. We all do, but if we'd never seen a spinner, I think we'd been better off. But now that, that you ain't putting that rabbit back in the hat. Um, um, duck energy days. Something that we could do, whether it be governmental, statewide, however we could do it, to where we could have the groceries back on the ground in the state of Arkansas we had in the seventies, eighties, early Mm nineties. If we could find a way to find a program that where farmers still make a living, but we could wind up with different varieties. Maybe there's something we could develop some sort of something. You come through, cut your rice, maybe get an earlier variety that always return or replant some sort of a really fast maturing millet or something behind it. Just something that we could increase our duck energy days from one quickly. Um, we're in such a deficit that's going, that's constantly affecting our yearly recruitment and ducks coming back to Arkansas. Uh, and the more geese we start in the winter along with ducks, we're starting to use up more and more waste grain that's on the ground. Um, less natural habitat, natural foods. If there's a way we could find to signature of a pen could put duck energy days back on the ground that we need. That's that's I would like to figure that out. Yeah. Excellent answer. That's that's a good one. That's a good one. And there's you know, there's some stuff on the horizon coming along that I, I think will help that. I don't know that it will fix it, but it all comes back to funding and and that's where we come at we need more hunters. You know, we, mm-hmm. that's the revenue we need in the sport to fix those issues, not just in Arkansas, but, but everywhere, uh, continent wide. So, uh, Jimbo, man, thanks for your time today. Great episode. Enjoyed having you on. I don't know how many hours you and I've spent talking ducks, but it was, it was fun to do it here. So I appreciate you your bet, time. Man. Well, like Brent said, that's, that's an insight into one of our conversations, whether at the camp at night or somebody's got a long road trip and you got time to sit and chat, you know, that's the kind of conversations we like to get into. And, um, and it, it's, it's real. And I, I hope somebody gets something out of it. Yeah. Maybe next time we'll just talk Ford trucks the entire time. That'd be fun too. <laughs> <laughs> you and I can definitely go down a rabbit hole on that. So. Yeah. That'd be fun too. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for all the listeners for tuning in. You can check us out online at standardsportsman.com. Check out this podcast or check us out on social media at The Standard Sportsman. Thank you all. The Standard Sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. From the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. 
These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, farm and ranching, or home and gardening, Light Boots are guaranteed game-changers. Now available in youth sizes.